Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Enredo. A podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. When our guest Emily Hunsberger of Tertulia Podcast reached out to us about collaborating on an episode, she mentioned something that piqued our interest. I am from a Spanish-speaking country, she said. There are 41 million Spanish speakers in the U.S. Hmm. We had never looked at the U.S. as a Spanish-speaking country, but that conversation opened up an interesting discussion with Emily and with Salvatore Calesano, the guest in our previous episode, about the type of Spanish spoken in the U.S., our perceptions of it, and whether there truly is a U.S. Spanish. Emily is a bilingual communicator who works with companies and organizations to reach Spanish-speaking audiences, but she's also a mom raising bilingual children in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you haven't listened to our episode with Salvatore, make sure you do. We'll link it in the show notes. And now, here's Emily. One of the things that when I when I listened to your interview with Leticia Molinero, um, Donde Estamos Parados, she establishes that translation is sort of a, an exercise in communication, that that's its primary concern, right? And that really helps us establish where she stands in this debate. You know, and this is something that we've said in the past about how language is a means to communicate, right? And interfering too much with it um, to make like a correction or an adjustment can break down that effort, particularly with a child, that they're still sort of developing these skills. So, and and in the episode, Leticia makes a case for the United States being a legitimate Spanish-speaking country, and she proposed the term estadounidismo. And I wanted you, um, Emily, to talk a little bit about that. I will say that going into the interview with Leticia, I had already read some of the things she's written and listened to some of her interviews. And I knew that I was already on board, essentially, with what she was proposing and her vision of the U.S. And one of my little buzz phrases that I always use is that the U.S. is a Spanish-speaking country because according to different estimates, roughly the average number that people are going to report of Spanish speakers in the U.S. is around 40 million. Sometimes some people count it a little differently. It's a little higher or lower, but let's just say it's 40 million. That's greater than the population of Peru. So, you know, if you're just looking at numbers alone and you want to situate the U.S. somewhere in the spectrum of all the different Spanish-speaking countries around the world, why wouldn't you call the U.S.? a Spanish-speaking country. And also, if you look at the history of Spanish in the United States, it's not like, oh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, all of a sudden, there's this boom in Spanish speakers. I mean, most of the U.S. was Spanish-speaking prior to becoming English-speaking. So there's a lot of different dynamics that influence my view that I share with Leticia Molinero, that the U.S. is a Spanish-speaking country. And when it comes to Estadounidismos, my conversation with her actually made me kind of confront my own prejudice against Estadounidismos, thinking about communication being the function of language, you know, its reason for being. And, you know, I've had several conversations since 
I don't know if I'm trying to find people to convert them to Estado Unidismos, <laughs> you know, not the people, but convert them to the side of recognizing <laughs> them is what I mean. Um, you know, like I'm thinking of one conversation I had with a colleague who is originally from Mexico City, but, you know, he's been living here for I don't know how many decades. And he's like, I hate when people say parquear. And I'm thinking of all these reasons why that is just a arbitrary kind of emotional reaction because nobody complains about parque being the Spanish word for park. And also in several Latin American countries, parquear is the standard and nobody looks at it as some sort of Spanglish or bastardized Spanish word. So it's very complex, but I think if you can try to strip yourself of emotional reactions or the automatic assumption that just because Spanish in the U.S. is going to be in contact with English, that it somehow diminishes the value of the Spanish. And I think even if you have a certain standard, you know, to judge whether something is Spanglish or a pigeon or a mix or the wrong thing, you can just look to all of Latin America and maybe even include Spain and the other places where Spanish is spoken, and you'll probably find something similar equivalent. So it's just kind of like when I think all of the arguments against defining the U.S. as a Spanish-speaking country start to crumble when you look at it that way. You know, when you're talking about that struggle of sort of accepting Estadounidismos, right, as something that's legitimate and real, which I I think it is, um, you know, these value judgments are ubiquitous, right? You know, you find them among Spanish speakers in the U.S. and also in Latin America. And, and a lot of these sort of forces go way beyond language, you know, and into socioeconomic factors and race and ethnicity and even post-colonial attitudes, right? Um, so, and I imagine, you know, our kids sort of being in the middle of these sort of boondoggle, <laughs> trying to figure out sort of the semiotics of something that, that they, st they have very little grasp on. They're still learning the language and it's just impossible for them. And, and it's, I feel, I feel sort of like a little bit of responsibility of carrying that baggage because I, I, I have in the past sort of had issues with people using estelonismos. <laughs> I have that. And, and I feel like I, I like that this is something that is now sort of being discussed in sort of a real sort of high levels of, you know, academia and, and people that are really just trying to make this something that's legitimate and official, because I think that we need to come to terms with that and, and these sort of structures that define what a language is and what it should be are sort of acknowledging this, that helps. I think that there's two different points that you made that are really interesting and relevant to me. And one is kind of like a hierarchy of needs when it comes to language, because when your children are first learning a language, they're worried about whether the words coming out of their mouth communicate, you know, like if they need food or water or something, you know, like, are they saying the right thing that we understand? Are they saying it clearly and like kind of that refining of actually getting the message across, getting their needs met? And then as they grow older, you know, giving them this uh, additional instruction or kind of exposing them to different scenarios so that they understand the more social dynamics and kind of what they might confront out in the world and possible ways to respond to it, you know, but like when their kids are my age, you know, four and a, a baby under one, 
we're just trying to get the basics down <laughs> at this point. But there is an element of, you know, starting like I think even at four, my son already understands some people say certain words differently than we might say it in our house when we're speaking Spanish. And he already gets that. And I've already witnessed him talking, having conversations with other people. Well, they'll, they'll use a little bit different vocabulary than us. And he kind of gets it because he gets it from context and goes with the flow. And um, uh, another thing, I think that I probably melded the two points I referenced <laughs> into one response. But I think that um, preparing them for possible reactions and I don't know what it's going to be like when my son enters school, but I have heard a lot of stories from friends and colleagues of their children being corrected by a teacher or other figure when Spanish is in the classroom setting because they have a different variety and being told that their variety is wrong. But I think that potentially that could be changing. And also, like you said, we have a responsibility to our kids, but I think our kids are also going to have such a, a broader understanding and kind of a, a more open minds when it comes to Spanish because they are being raised in this very diverse linguistic environment. And they already know like some people don't even speak Spanish, people speak other language languages. I just think it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, if they are a little bit more free of those emotional responses and that drive to correct somebody else, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like an experiment. It is. <laughs> and we can only hope. I mean, that's my hope. And I think that's kind of how we started talking about this with you, Emily. Um, it, it's just that view that they are being exposed to the richness and diversity of the language by grown by learning it here, because there aren't those hangups that come with living in a particular culture. And I mean, I think that the the perceptions of Spanish, I mean, they're not only about U.S. Spanish. I mean, I think Monica mentioned it earlier, even among Latin American countries or even regions within the same country, there's always these perceptions about or biases towards certain words. You're a non-native speaker. C can you give us a little bit of background about how you learned Spanish or, or became fluent in Spanish and your experiences with the language. You talk about negative perceptions. And so I'm curious to know if you've experienced kind of some negativity about your Spanish. I've realized at this point in my life, I have a lot of buzz phrases, like I mentioned before. So, uh, you know, a, a question I get often is, how did you learn Spanish? And I say, well, I'm still learning Spanish because it's a lifelong learning. And, you know, I, and I started learning in school growing up in South Florida, and it was just a little enrichment program in my elementary school. So it, I still remember it was a PBS produced series called Saludos, and it was little videos with puppets and, you know, real characters, and you had some worksheets. And that's how I first started learning it formally. However, I was growing up in an environment where I don't think that um, now it makes as much sense. But like historically in South Florida, that was one of the early places where Spanish was celebrated as 
a second language or a common language of the community. So I think that probably just helped me to embrace it and really want to learn it if I had to, you know, reach back in hindsight and try to figure out what has been this drive for me to spend the majority of my life, you know, with Spanish as my second language. And that's also what I refer to Spanish now. Spanish is my second language because everybody's always talking about English as a second language. And I feel like in my life, Spanish has been my language of school and work, whereas English was my home language. So in a way, is they had reversed roles for me. And the other question I get a lot is, did you ever live in a Spanish-speaking country? And I say, I was born and raised and currently live in a Spanish-speaking country, you know, <laughs> with a little, like, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Um, because, again, you know, I think if I can use Spanish every day in my life here, I must be living in a Spanish-speaking country, you know, not just in my little nest with my kids, but, you know, going out in places and relationships and socially and business and everything. So, um, I, but, you know, apart from giving my buzzwords in full disclosure, I also have a bachelor's and a master's in Spanish. So I, I did spend a significant amount of time studying Spanish. Formally, I have spent a little bit of time abroad in other Spanish speaking countries. And I have traveled to several Latin American countries for work before. And I think I had a very interesting experience as well. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a number of years before moving to Michigan, where I live now. My last job there, I worked for a foundation that was based in Latin America, and we had staff across 15 countries. And so we would have conference calls, and there was always this negotiation with Spanish. So here you have a bunch of Spanish speakers, and still they're having to negotiate. Well, wait, what did you mean? How I didn't understand that because, you know, just the varieties and differences. Obviously, you know, there's a common understanding of the majority, but there's always, you know, those occasional things that popped up. And so that's kind of the general history of how I got to the point today uh, with Spanish being my second language in terms of the reactions to my Spanish. When I initially decided I was going to try to pass on all the Spanish I have acquired over nearly 30 years <laughs> to my children, I thought, though, this is going to be really odd, you know, like, am I a legitimate member of the Spanish speaking community? Am I trying to appropriate something that's not mine? You know, I was a little bit concerned, but I haven't actually had a lot of negative reactions. And I think in some cases, the reactions that I have received have been signals to me to how important it is and how much more we could be investing in maintaining and developing Spanish as a heritage language. Because I have so many people tell me, I wish I spoke Spanish like you did, or your Spanish is so much better than mine. And these are people who have, you know, a heritage connection to the Spanish language. So oftentimes the reactions are positive, but also have this other layer that, you know, there are people who wish that their parents hadn't feared discrimination or, you know, worried that if they helped their child continue to develop Spanish, then their English would suffer or all of these myths that exist around maintaining a heritage language, or they just didn't have as many resources available to them to continue to develop their Spanish. So. 
I really haven't had a lot of negative experiences, but it has opened up a lot of conversations with people that have helped me learn so much more about all these dynamics. That, that's great. And, you know, I would argue that um, if anyone asks you why you know Spanish, why you speak Spanish, you can say that you are, because you are from South Florida, you are from a Spanish-speaking country. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Be, you know, I don't know if you got to, you heard all of our conversation with Salvatore. We talk in, um, a lot about Miami and South Florida. Okay. And how unique it is in terms of um, Spanish speaking. I mean, it really, mm -hmm. I, I mean, being in Miami, I, I can go an entire day without using English. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Um, and, I, you know, when I think about Spanish outside of Miami, right? I mean, it, it's sort of like a, it's going through an interesting transition now. And you see, you know, news coverage, for instance, where people will be praising, you know, bilingual education and the cognitive advantages. Usually when they mean bilingual education, most of the programs in the U.S. are Spanish English. Right. And mm -hmm. you'll see Spanish language pop culture and, you know, this sort of embracing of the culture and the language. But then on the other side. Right. You'll see stories of people, you know, being questioned and really put in dangerous situations for speaking Spanish in mm -hmm. public. Yes. So there's now yes. sort of sort of these two different, I don't know, forces that are completely, you know, against each other. And I really like, you know, I really like this concept of saying, hey, um, the United States is a Spanish speaking country. And there is no question about that. I, I really, really appreciate both you and Leticia sort of having this conversation about I, about this particular topic, because I think it's even stronger than, you know, the benefits of bilingualism, for instance, because I think that sort of it, it sort of really affects the culture, too, of how we see a language and the people that speak it and how they are part of this country and how essential that is. I have never looked into this, but it's just coming to mind now. For those countries that not only have multiple official languages, but really their education system and also over a continued period of time, like not a recent surge in dual language education, like I feel like we're kind of having a boom of dual language education in the U.S., but, you know, like Canada or certain European countries where it's just there's always been a presence of multiple languages. And, you know, officially through the education system, both those languages are supported for every generation coming up. And it's just, you know, pervasive. I wonder, you know, how do they refer to themselves? Like we are a bilingual country. We are a French and English speaking country, like in the case of Canada. You know, what is that identity that they have for their country? You know, what does it even mean when we say? Spanish speaking doesn't have to mean only Spanish because again like that argument would crumble because if you look at a lot of countries in Latin America you know how many other indigenous languages are spoken you look at Spain and they have you know Valenciano, Gallego you know all these other you know and then there's arguments about whether those are dialects or languages you know I think we all consider ourselves people who embrace multilingualism and language diversity and all this stuff but then you realize you know sometimes it's just these moments or these conversations or a questioning of a definition and then if you just dig a little deeper you know you, you realize well I'm kind of unfairly judging the United States or the United States or the Spanish speaking population of the United States, because I'm acting like 
the Spanish speaking world is this monolith that we have, you know, we don't have all the credentials to enter, but it's not like that, truly. So it helps to just kind of allow yourself, I think, the freedom to not judge ourselves so harshly, you know, and look at the rest of the Spanish speaking world and be like, hey, we're all kind of in this mix together when there's no one ideal Spanish or Spanish speaking country definition or identity. I think that this is something, again, if we allow ourselves to not judge ourselves so harshly and dig a little deeper, there's always kind of um, this borrowing of languages. And sometimes it's not even negative. Like if you think in a certain era, using a French term when France was kind of the capital of culture and you know, all things, um, I don't know, I guess I'm going to say haute couture, right? Because, you know, using the French phrase had that cachet. And this may seem out of left field, but just stay with me. I'm part of a book club too, and we read all of our works in Spanish, and some of them are in translation, some of them are original works in Spanish. So right now, I wasn't there, somebody chose Ana Karenina in Spanish, and I've been reading it for like months. Anyway, but it's so, but it's so, I know, but it's so interesting to me because this is a book written in the 19th century and in, there's all these comments about, you know, how, oh, they spoke French in front of their, you know, hired servants when they didn't want them to understand, or, you know, she knew he had forgiven her because he spoke to her using, well, in this version, because it's a Spanish translation, saying usted or something. And I'm like, oh, what are the pronouns in Russian? And anyway, all these things about language are commented in the book in the mix of languages and how, you know, speaking, throwing in an English word, throwing in a French word was kind of like it had this signal that you were a person of the world, you know, and cultured and everything. And so I think if you look just in across different countries and different languages and different contexts and historical periods, there's always been a need to just import a word because it came from a different culture or it just made more sense or you didn't have an equivalent. And then also how so many languages, this is basically how languages even develop in the first place. And just then you get enough time away from the original importing from another language and you forget that you even had that origin and it becomes pure or you know only Spanish without any influence or things like that so it's like nothing is really has ever been pure everything has always come from mixing and contact and you then kind of on the flip side or just you know getting back to our current moment in history I just had a situation come up with uh, a translation job that I was doing and they referred to baby showers and then their marketing company that was putting my translation into the design kicked it back and they were like the translator didn't translate baby showers and I was like okay I'm sorry that was actually intentional not an oversight because everybody just says baby shower <laughs> so you know I'm like no there's no translation for that like it, it would take up too much space I would have to be like Una fiesta para celebrar y conmemorar la esperanza y la felicidad de, you know, like what, what would I even say? And um, so, you know, and I think that, again, it's 
like you can get so um, focused sometimes on wanting to do the right thing or the correct thing. And I am guilty of this every single day, you know, 24 hours a day, like, oh, am I doing the right thing or the correct thing? Like double checking myself and not wanting to teach my kids the wrong thing, you know, when really uh, I should probably just relax because whatever language they're going to be speaking, you know, with their friends is going to be so different from what I taught them anyway, because that's just the nature of language. Thank you to Emily Hunsberger for speaking with us about this topic. Make sure you also listen to our conversation with her over at tertuliapodcast.com. We discussed, in Spanish, our take on the Spanish our children are growing up with. If you like this episode, please tell your friends or anyone you think may be interested. Gracias. As always, join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Entre Dos Podcast. Hasta la próxima. Nos vemos.